0: After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, Let's pray. God, our Father, help us to understand what these words mean, not simply in our heads, but in our hearts, that we would be changed people by the gospel message. We ask that and we pray that. In Jesus' name, amen. Familiarity may not always breed contempt, but it pretty much always breeds desensitization. To to begin telling you what I mean by that, maybe we could start with the slap heard around the internet. So when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock... I don't know about you, but I heard about it, and in about two minutes, I was overthinking about it. Now that is not because of the people involved. I actually think quite a lot of Will Smith. It's been obvious he always had a cultivated, carefully tended public image, but if you read underneath that, he has tended to try to be somewhat of an honest person. Chris Rock, I actually think, is one of the best cultural commentators I've seen, a bit profane for my taste, but quite insightful. It's not the people, nor is it the seriousness. It's a big deal when one grown man attacks another grown man physically. Nor is it the provocation. It is a big deal when someone tells a joke about someone else's spouse. It's none of those things. I was over it because... If I'd been watching, which I wasn't, but if I'd been watching, I would have been able to say, here's how this is gonna go. Something genuinely surprising just happened. Twitter will blow up with everybody surprised. Within moments, long before we've been able to figure out if this was a genuinely surprising thing or if this was a publicity stunt by a show with declining ratings, Twitter will blow up again with people commenting on he was right, he was wrong. Facebook will soon follow. The algorithms will take over. Neither group will actually hear anything the other group says, but quickly be put into two camps, each of whom is determined that the other group is everything that's wrong with the world. Once that's done, the memes will kick in, And then finally, the last stage will be the people who comment on this mode of discourse, people like me now fulfilling my own prophecy, and talk about how broken social media is. And within two days, the cycle will be done, and we will do it again. I'm over it. Well, you might argue that a little bit of contempt for the social media method of discourse would do us all a lot of good. Maybe this is a case where a little familiarity and contempt and desensitization might be a really good thing for the world. But my concern this afternoon is that we actually get desensitized because of our familiarity to things that ought to be front and center, things that ought to be absolutely crucial, that are the real foundation of our lives, and we start to forget about them. So let me tell you another story also true from the early 20th century, the story of a man named Chung Ling Su a Chinese illusionist who traveled England, particularly performing the very, very dangerous trick called the bullet catch. Now, just as an aside, his actual name was William Robinson, and he spoke with a Brooklyn accent. Remember, he's an illusionist. What did you expect? Um, In the bullet catch, here's what happens. Remember, the audience is handed a live round. They mark it, and then the assistant, holding a firearm, it is in view of everyone, loaded into the gun... There's a glass wall between the assistant and the illusionist. The gun is pointed directly at Mr. Su and fired. And then on the other side, after the glass shatters with the bullet, the illusionist catches it either on a plate, sometimes in his hand, most dangerously with his teeth. Well, Chung Lin Su traveled England performing this stunt time after time, time after time, Um, and one day he walked up, did the stunt on the stage the way he had always done it because it always worked, but unknown to him, over the weeks and months and years, his props had started wearing out, particularly his firearms with a hidden secret compartment, and so this day, just like always, he walked up, the glass shattered, and he was pierced through the left lung by a bullet and died on the stage. You see, what had happened is in his familiarity in his being used to this, he had in a sense forgotten that he was facing a live round in a real gun, altered for sure, but a real gun pointed directly at him, and familiarity was fatal. And of course, spiritually, this is unquestionably true. We use again and again and again the language of sin and forgiveness so often that we can start to forget what it really means and how vital this really is, what it must be for us to understand what John is teaching us in his gospel. And so if we look at tonight's or this afternoon's passage, we're really going to look at both what was read before and after the last verse of the song. Verses 28 to the end of the chapter. And we're going to look particularly at verse 35. And what John teaches us here is that sin is such a big deal that Jesus has to die for us. That sin is such a big deal that Jesus has to die for us. And we'll ask just two simple questions. First, why does John say what he says? And second, why does Jesus do what he did? So if you would, look at verse 35. John writes, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. Well, has it it ever occurred to you to wonder, why does John say this verse here? I mean, I don't know about you, but If you look at this rough outline, John 19, chapter 19 is about the fact that Jesus got crucified. John chapter 20, the next chapter, is about the fact that he rose from the dead. Well, if John is going to say, by the way, I'm not lying. This is true. It really happened. I promise it. Would you feel like you had to say that at the end of the crucifixion or at the end of the resurrection? I mean, I, again, maybe you come from it from a different way than I do. I don't have that much trouble believing that the Romans took a troublesome Jewish rabbi who was making a mess and crucified him. I don't need John to say, I swear it, the man who saw it knows it's true here. I need him to say it in the next chapter, to to imagine that it's really true that somebody could rise from the dead. Why does John put this verse here? Why does he feel like he has to say this? Well, if we back up and look at the whole passage, it might start to make a little sense. Look back at verse 31 the Jewish leaders go to Pilate, and they ask that the death of Jesus and these two others could be hurried up. You see, it's about to become Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, when no work can be done. And that matters, of course. The Sabbath is a big deal, but this is particularly a big deal. This is a high holy day. This is the Sabbath of Passover, And it's just not the optic they want to have a bunch of Jewish bodies hanging on crosses. And ironically, of course, because they helped put Jesus on the cross, but the crucifixion does exemplify the Romans' control, that the Jews are smashed down under Roman authority. They do not have their homeland. They do not have real control. And so they say, look, this isn't really the optic we want on Passover Sabbath. Can we get the bodies off the cross before that? Now, you may wonder, why does Pilate grant it? Well, Pilate Pilate has all the power in the end. If things go wrong in Jerusalem, if there's a riot, if there's trouble, he can send soldiers swooping in, they can kill hundreds or thousands of people, they can break into homes, they can vandalize and violate, and they can restore order by terror. They have done it in the past, they will do it again. But every time that Pilate has to do that... Word gets back to Rome, wow, this guy has trouble keeping control of this place. It's not good for your career as a provincial governor if Rome, if Caesar starts saying, I wonder if this guy's not up to the job. So even though Pilate has the full authority in the end, they know they can make a mess for Pilate, and he knows they can make a mess for Pilate. So in this dance that he is continually doing of terrorizing but also mollifying the population, he says, sure, you can do that. And so he sends some soldiers. Now understand, some of you are soldiers. Many of you have been soldiers. A soldier is given a task, given a job, and then the soldier's job is to get that job done accurately, correctly, and fully. Well, this is about as core competency as you can get if you're a Roman soldier. Make sure somebody's dead. I mean, this is their expertise. This is what they do. And so they go to the crosses. Now, when someone was crucified, often there would be a wedge placed under his or her feet where they were nailed to the vertical beam of the cross. What that wedge did is allowed the person to push up to breathe. As he or she was hanging there, their legs were nailed to the cross, and to get any degree of, of breath into the lungs required a push. It was extremely painful, of course. There was a spike through your ankles, but the alternative was to suffocate. And so this would prolong the agony. It would prolong the death. It would enable the Romans to send a signal to the whole population of, if you cross us, this is what's waiting for you. A long, slow, agonizing death. Now, even more, as the person hung on the cross, Fluid would start to pool down into their lower abdomen and the groin area. Things would swell, let me just put it that way. It was grotesque, it was painful, it was shameful, it was done naked. And in this situation, it could take days to die. Well, if you want to hasten the process, what you do is you go and you break the legs, because if the person can't push up, within probably 10 minutes, 15 at the outside, their shoulders are too weak to carry the load. They will slowly suffocate, and they will be quickly dead. And so the soldiers arrive, and for the other two who've been crucified with Jesus, that's exactly what they do. They break their legs, but they come to Jesus, and surprisingly, seemingly, he's already died. But remember, these guys are pros. This is their job. What, what if he just swooned? What if he fainted? What if he is passed out but would come back? So one soldier takes a spear, pushes it into Jesus' lower abdomen and side, and all that fluid that's been pooling comes rushing out. In other words, John is saying there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus really did die on that cross. Again, verse 35, "'I swear it, I testify to it, it's true.'" So, for the third time, why does he feel like he has to say this here? Well, if you think about John's book, it starts to make sense. Remember that our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though they record the beginning of the New Testament, are some of the later books written. They are written when the people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection are starting themselves to die. For most of John's life in his ministry, it was possible to go to the people who would say, yes, I touched him. I saw him. I hugged him. I cried with him. I ate with him. I touched his scars. I know Jesus is alive. John had spent his life ministering with people and in a context where you could go talk to him if you were willing to travel and find them. And so to all those people, it's really not a question that Jesus is alive. But we've got to understand this. Ancient people were no more gullible than we are. It's very easy to get a chronological snobbery to look back and say, those ancient people must have been superstitious bumpkins who would believe anything. They were no more inclined to believe in the resurrection of a dead person than you or I would be today. So if they knew Jesus was alive, well then, if they don't want to believe in a resurrection, what's the only alternative to answer? He must not have really been dead. And so John goes out of his way to say, no, I promise you, he really did die. Even more, if you think about his book, one of the great things about the gospel of John is that John is just completely transparent. He does not hide at all why he writes his book. It got mentioned by Terence and Rob two weeks ago in the sermons. If you flip to the next chapter, you'll see it in verses 30 and 31. John says, look, Jesus did many other things that I have not written down in this book, but I have written these down so that you may come to believe and know that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. So John is incredibly transparent. I wrote this book so you'll realize who Jesus is. Well, we're on chapter 19 of 20. In other words, we're a long way into John's project, And by now, hopefully, John would think as an author, we've gotten it. We realize he really is God incarnate. But if you realize that, won't you immediately say, well, then how in the world could people put Jesus to death? If he's really God, that doesn't make any sense. It didn't make sense then. It doesn't make sense now. Um, Do you remember the first Wonder Woman movie? She has the sword, which she thinks is the weapon that can kill Mars, the god of war. And what happens? It disintegrates into dust. And he says, only a god can kill another god. Well, that's, of course, not Christian theology. But it is an accurate understanding of what the ancient world would have felt. And it's certainly true that the people who are reading John's original gospel would have thought, well, if he really is God, there's no way he could actually have died because humans can't kill God. So how is it that Jesus, who's really God, but really man, died? Well, even some of the greats of Christian theology would struggle with this after the resurrection. And against that all, John insists, verse 35, Jesus really was completely, totally, unquestionably dead. It's the second question. It leads immediately to it. Why would Jesus do this? Why, why would Jesus hang on this cross? Why would he suffer like this? Why would he go through the agonizing thing that this is? Why would he feel even worse the wrath of God the Father upon him for this? He did it for us. He did it for you and he did it for me. Because here's what it is. We have a tendency, it's all humans' tendency, to minimize our own sin. It's just a common human reaction, I'm okay, you're not. And it works out in different ways in different times, but it's almost universal that when we look at ourselves, we find ways to excuse the things we struggle with while we see what's so wrong with the things they struggle with. I mean, imagine it this way if you've never heard this illustration. Um, take from zero to a hundred from the two ends of, this, of the platform here. At zero is absolutely no sin. Never one, never once, never will be. In other words, Jesus is over at zero. Now, on the other end, at 100, take the very worst sinner you can ever imagine. Now, some people go to history, Stalin, Pol Pot. Some people go to Hitler. Some people have somebody in their life who has been such a monster that they can easily envision immediately, that's 100. That's as bad as it could possibly be. If that's your spectrum, from Jesus to the person who's practically the devil incarnate, where would you be standing on the stage? Where, where would you just start to imagine yourself? And of course, what happens is we say, well, yes, I totally get it. I'm not over there. I'm probably not even the middle. I'm probably over here somewhere. But as we look down there, but I'm also not as bad as that. And of course, we don't have to go to an historical sort of demon figure to get there. Every time you and I look at somebody else and what they've done and think, but I wouldn't do that. You realize we're validating it? They're just a little further over there than I am. We always have a tendency to look at sin and say, theirs is so bad. Mine's, well, God's going to cut me some slack here. And what we miss in that is we're looking at this from our view of sin, from this desensitized view that doesn't understand what we're dealing with, that's forgotten how bad it is. Because... We're actually not saying that all sin is absolutely identical. Some sins do have much bigger consequences than others. It is certainly worse to murder somebody than to steal a pencil from the local store. And God's no idiot. He knows those differences too. But it's not like we're spread out from, you know, maybe 10. Mother Teresa's maybe over at 10 all the way to, you know, 98. 98. Jesus is over at zero, and yeah, we're spread out, but we're spread out from 99 to 100, all bunched together on the far end. We tend to minimize what sin is because we can't see it with God's eyes. But the Apostle Paul, writing in the book of Romans, the sixth book of our New Testament, he says in the third chapter, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Three chapters later in chapter 6, he says, for the wages of sin is death. You see, what it is, is in fact, we're on the stage and sin is that loaded gun pointed at us, but there's no hidden chamber. There's a live round in the chamber and we live with judgment pointed at us because we have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no other way to look at it, John says, other than realize how important this is. It's easy to get desensitized to that. We've lived, life's been fine, it's gone well, I'm okay not realizing what's pointed at us. And then Jesus steps in front of us, and when the gun goes off, if you believe in him, he takes the bullet. When he hangs on that cross, He takes what is destined for each and every one of us because of our sin. All the shame, all the suffering, all the wrath suddenly is not upon us, but if we believe in Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is taken on him so that we are spared the punishment we deserve. The gun goes off, but right when the glass shatters, Christ steps in front and he receives the blow. Same Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Suddenly, we are viewed by the Lord all the way over at zero sin because Christ takes all of ours upon himself and he pays off that debt. He deals with what we could never deal with. He makes us right with God if we follow him. Would it work? Well, as often has been said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let's pray. God, our Lord, help us to feel the weight of sin, but not in despair, instead in gratitude and joy and gratefulness, because we feel the weight of sin, but then we see what Jesus has done for us, and we realize how much he loves us. Make both of them more real to us. Even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.